0: I have to admit, I used to be a little bit of a book snob. I wouldn't even consider a Kindle, let alone an audiobook. It just felt like cheating. But that is until I tried Audible and Open Audible. Ever wonder where I find the time to read all the books that my guests have written on this show? Well, this is the answer. When I'm behind in my reading, I just jump to Audiobook. Open Audible is a cross-platform audiobook manager designed for Audible users that can allow you to download, view, manage, and connect your favorite audiobooks on MP3 so you can enjoy them across all your devices. Best of all, you can control it all from a desktop application. I'm giving away a copy of Open Audible for the entire month of November. All you have to do is sign up to my mailing list. You'll find the link in the description below or go to openaudible.org for more information. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Guys in the Flag Jackets. Gary and Jim are the Guys in the Flag Jackets. Every week, these two sit down and discuss a wide variety of political issues, all the way from the weird and wonderful world of local politics to more obscure political ideas and concepts. Ever wondered about the 1979 Chicago mayoral election? Well, I hadn't either until these guys came along and blew my mind. Or did you know that the layout of the ballot can have a crazy influence upon the way you vote? Neither did I, but thankfully Gary and Jim were there to tell me all about it. So if you want a fun and intriguing look into US politics from a unique perspective, check out the guys in the Flag Jackets podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find the link in the description below uh hello everyone welcome to another episode of chatter today i am here with andrew small uh, a fellow at the german marshall fund and author of the new book the rupture china and the race for the global future you can see that there we go um so yeah sorry the global race for the future <laughs> not the race for the global future same thing really it's much the same thing. Yeah. It is basically the same thing <laughs> um so so yeah thanks for sending me the book um I, you may be surprised to know that it actually gave me quite a lot of hope, um, strangely, um, because I had long been under the impression that a lot of the people working in the sort of upper echelons of of government and diplomacy um, were sort of, it was at least my view that they had like fallen asleep at the wheel in regards to China and sort of not recognized the threat. They are in like many different spheres, whether that's actually like a military threat or whether that's you know sort of just to the the hegemony of of like Western corporations or like you know within the the diplomatic sphere around the world. And I, I felt like they were becoming a lot more powerful than we were willing to admit. And it seemed from from reading your book, actually, it seems like there's a lot more people within the governments who are very aware of of this and are sort of making moves to counter that. Um, which was quite yeah quite hopeful which is great um <laughs> so uh, where did where did you first start sort of thinking about about this idea um of of, of china sort of like potentially challenging like the the quote-unquote west for like a, a to be the the global par essentially
1: i mean when i first started working really fully on China. And I mean, I I lived in China before China was a global power. When I was teaching English uh, there in in the late 90s, I don't think anyone at this juncture was talking about um, China as a peer competitor of the United States. It was so far off, the power differentials were so vast. Um, And it was only in the kind of Early to mid two thousands, when I was uh, going back to to work in Beijing, that you started to get this real takeoff phase. That China, which again, I mean, as as a point of comparison, was probably on the same economic scale as the UK, France, something like that at at that juncture. But it was becoming a power that had global weight and mattered um, in a whole series of spheres that it hadn't before. Um, And I mean, actually, the first. Sort of pamphlet that I wrote was was called Preventing the Next Cold War, um, because you could see even then a lot of the the long term trends unfolding in a particular direction, and if if they broke in a particular way, uh, if economic growth continued as it did, if 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 all of the trends headed in a certain direction, which in in many ways they they did end up heading in that direction, there was always the prospect that you were going to head into a, a very different kind of phase of of relations, um, and I kind of followed the whole, the dynamics on all the different sides. And and, and for me, I I was always following it from China's relations with, as it were, the West as a whole. It was never just about the US and China, it was never just about Europe and China or the UK and China. Um, The thing that was always interesting to me Looking out as I used to as well from from the Beijing end was this was how it was understood from from there. This was a kind of systemic way of thinking um, about things that said that you're dealing in some sense or other with the U.S. alliance network, the free market democracies, uh, and and the kind of the ideology, liberal democracy, and things like that. It was it was although you had of course this particular fixation on the United States, um, it, it was always viewed I think through that through that prism. Is this a system that's generating Growth, technology, success, um, rather than it just being the purview of, of a single state. So it's it's something that then at different cuts after this point. Um, the, the the question was: what form of China are we dealing with? Uh, what form of relationship is possible? And and in a sense, where are some of these trends headed? Where are the internal trends in in, in China headed? Do we still have grounds for Uh, expecting that there may still be economic reform, um, that some of the Potential political changes could come further down the line. Is freedom advancing for the Chinese people in, in different ways? Even if it's not advancing in kind of classic political ways, are you still seeing the well-being of the Chinese people, the capacity to travel more freely, express themselves more freely? How is that moving? And and just what is going on in in, in the system on the Chinese side as uh, as well? Um, and how how is China thinking about its it how it handles its, the fundamentals of its relations? Yeah with with the West and what the trade-offs are. And, and you've had all of these different cuts in which that's then tilted in different directions, either internally as we're now dealing with, with, with Xi Jinping or in its posture towards the rest of the world. And I think particularly after the financial crisis, I think that's still the marker point for a lot of people of saying that the calculations on the Chinese side started to shift. That was an attitude that was both that um, China's power position in relative terms had shifted markedly in its favour um and also that the questions of whether in the end the Western system produced the best kind of model, whether they were the teacher, as it were, on the economic side in particular. But, but in a certain sense, that you sort of this deference to um, the idea that um, you know China would be defensive of its own system, but didn't think its system was superior, really, um, other than a small number of cadres at the top of the party. And I'm not sure how convinced even they were. Yeah. Um, but that started to move at that point. Um, and uh, I mean, the, the book really it does go back a little bit to some of those. those there's earlier points and you know we've seen all of these things accelerate in in the last few years but it, it's been something i've certainly been thinking about the whole time that i've been dealing with China, at least since the early 2000s yeah
0: yeah i mean it, i i haven't had the i'm not old enough to have been watching it uh, as, as um as long as maybe some maybe yourself or some of the other commentators in the space um so sometimes it's hard to get a grasp on how much things have actually changed Um, it's like you don't I don't get the sense of perspective of looking back because as long as I can remember like as long as I can remember it had like China has been like a growing threat like a but in a real sense because I would have been I was 14 but in the 2008 crash so like that's Mm -hmm. the, the the age at which I like sort of started to pay any kind of attention to like news or politics or or any of these things so so it really has been like my adult life has been Mm -hmm. it's been a threat that 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 for me it was like okay well then you know why are we not concerned about it um it was was always my question and and so like why why do you think they were able to fly under the radar as as like a a challenger in so many spheres um for so long
1: so I think there's a whole series of different reasons for, for for this and it's it's still something that people are I think wrestling with in 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 retrospect, um, because I, I think there is still an unresolved debate even among the people who do think now that there needs to be a very different set of China policies as to whether what the West was doing through this whole period was ever the right course of action, mm. um, and whether we're just adjusting to behavioural shifts and you know political shifts on on the Chinese side. Okay. Just
0: um, should we should we define what that course of action or what that sort of attitude previously was, just for for people? Yeah, I
1: mean, so I, I think you've had two phases of this i mean you you just had the, the phase of sort of unbridled optimism after the end of the cold war that said okay it's only a matter of time here um china's a holdout um it's a you know one of the few remaining communist systems um uh in the end we've we've seen all sorts of other authoritarian states non-communist authoritarian states um shift um their uh, shift towards democracy at a certain level of Per capita GDP, and you had all of these kind of predictive power that this 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 would give. But you'd also seen the collapse of communism um, and the idea that. There was kind of total supremacy on all counts. There was only one success model, and that success model was how the West did things. Mm. And so, and China was a you know a fraction of, of, of Western GDP. I mean, we're not even talking about UK levels, we're talking about a developing country where there was considerable doubt still about whether it would really break through uh, economically. And so I think the first phase was a generalized sense of optimism that. Um, uh, you, you wouldn't have to worry about um, uh, China. There was, a, there was a timing question of when things would change, but it changed for everyone, and everyone had to understand that this was the superior system. Um, and that wasn't a, a policy. That was just a sweeping judgment on how the world was moving um, because that was the way it seemed to be moving, the, the end of history version of things. Um, I think you then had a, a, a different attitude at a certain point, which was to say, uh, which, which was a bit kind of tighter, which which, which was to say, uh, we can see that China is pushing through a whole series of reforms. It's becoming more marketized. Um, in the end, how will the system hold up? Um, we're seeing the economic transformation. We're seeing the rise of the Internet. We're seeing all of these kind of shifts. Can authoritarian systems really hold up in with, with all of these transformative changes that are underway? Um, and in the meantime... The economy is thriving. Our firms are able to benefit from this. We want to push further opening, um, and we're not under no illusions that it's going to be quick change. But we do suspect that this is not a system that's going to hold up as it as it was. Um, and I think that was where you were get, getting in the early two thousands, and and you know China's WTO accession and, and and things like that. And at each point, it's been slightly redefined. I, I think what what the kind of more complacent view of of, of this has amounted to, because I think it started to shift towards something that was complacency at a certain point. It started to be, well, you know, China's actually not going to check. We're seeing a more resilient system on the Chinese side. We're increasingly doubting that there's any projection that the Chinese Communist Party is going to fall in the next five years, 10 years, 15, however far out one looked. Um, And actually, we're just going to have to deal with this system. But it's a system we can live with. It's a sort of soft authoritarianism. This is not North Korea. It's not totalitarian. Um, the, and we're seeing the kind of, we're, we're seeing the development of Chinese society, the Chinese economy. There's an unleashing of entrepreneurship. We're seeing positive changes here. And, and actually, and I mean, this is still the critical thing. It was a strategy on, on China's part that they would not act as a challenger. They would deliberately fly under the radar. They would not antagonize the the partners that they depended on to not contain them uh, form a counterbalancing coalition. And it wasn't even a counterbalancing coalition that you needed. You only needed the United States at certain points to take the sort of moves that you saw in the mid-90s with with Taiwan. It was complete military dominance um, on on the US part. Um, They still needed access to technology. They needed access to finance. um, And so the approach was very much Um, I mean, the old Deng Xiaoping uh, kind of language around it, which was hide your brightness, bide your time, don't stick your neck out. Um, And so when you had these kind of crises that came up through this period as well, whether it was 9-11 or the global financial crisis or any of these things, China acted in a constructive system stabilizing kind of way. Mm-hmm. It did not look like a disruptive power. It looked like a power that cared about, in some sense or other, particularly in these sorts of situations, the system kind of holding together. Um, and I would say the financial crisis and the Eurozone crisis and things were really the exemplification of that. This was a point where uh, you, you have this anecdote from, from Hank Paulson where he's in Beijing um, and I think it's for the Olympics, and he gets this new that uh, the Russians have been telling the Chinese that they should dump their holdings in mm-hmm. um Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, and the <laughs> Chinese bad. think, we are not going to do this. We do not want the system to collapse. This is gonna be bad for us, but it's gonna be bad for the system as a whole. Um well, they would and have started been-
0: pulling their money, like the, the US, the US if the, the entire US financial system had started to collapse, like they would have immediately started pulling all of their money from all their Chinese like investments. Um well presumably <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i mean yes i mean i think the sense was there that i mean because of the way china was approaching its currency it's absolutely astronomical dollar holdings um uh and and if, if China had decided that it wanted to take the US down at this juncture, um, it would have been very damaging to China too. But the sense was the the interests were intertwined. There was some genuine form of interdependence that you had with with, with China that it recognised as such. Um, and so I think all of these were were were, were factors that, that that kind of that, that played. I mean. It, it meant as well that there were always these more urgent crises. I think this was the other thing that happened through this whole period. So any time there was a, a mindedness, as you had at some different junctures, even when George W. Bush was 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 first elected, at certain other moments, um, you had even the first efforts that pivot to Asia under Obama. You had people identifying the problem and then always there was something more more pressing and it always seemed given China's power position you could kind of put it off for another few years so the eurozone crisis well at least China's being helpful when it comes to the statements it makes on bond purchases and things and and if it's buying some infrastructure at far sale prices we'll worry about the security implications of that later we've got a really urgent crisis to deal with now or it's the Arab Spring or it's Crimea hmm. or it's and and at each point when China was acting relatively unproblematically during these crises, in some cases relatively helpfully, the view was always, okay, we have this growing list of issues, growing list of problems, growing concerns. We see that China is now kind of catching up, but also still not far enough yet. I think there was still this attitude as well that was, well, you know, can China innovate was 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 a debate for a period of time. It was not, will China outpace us in AI and quantum and these things? It was, can China innovate at all? And I think from industry side, the view was always, and to some extent on the US military side as well, it was always China's several generations behind. Mm. Um, It's not up here. It's not, we're always, and we're moving to, and we're staying ahead and we're far enough ahead um, in economic terms, in technological terms, in military terms, that we can afford to see how this plays out. We can see maybe there's something that will come along and change everything. We don't have to upend everything yet. We're still making a certain amount of money in China, even if they're ripping off technology, even if where you know even if we're having to do all of these problematic deals um joint venture deals that mean that they then take over some kind of previous generation of technology that's like we can still live with it we're still making money and we can continue to kind of outpace them and I think that just went on for a very very sustained period of time and even when you'd have kind of red flags waved I mean in the book I talk about you know the Italians and the Spanish complaining about you know we were system rivals since forever you have all of the Data on what happened after China joined the WTO, the China shock analysis mm-hmm. um, about, you know, the, the political impact of, of, of what this was. And they were saying, well, you know, the, yes, um, this is globalization, but there's a hell of a lot of subsidies being put into this on on, on the Chinese side as well. This is still not yeah. okay. fair competition. Do you
0: know, actually, the, you are literally the perfect person to ask this. I have been wondering this, and it's just popped into my head for so, for literally since I discovered the fact that um it's my understanding that under World Trade Organization rules that state aid is basically like not allowed in 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 industry that there's like a lot of rules against state aid within mm. the World Trade Organization. Isn't China's entire economy state aid? Hmm. Yeah. Um I, I mean think- this this was <laughs> like, I mean this is actually the slightly amazing thing that also went on. Like
1: China joins the WTO And then you have, for the first decade, which is where some of the biggest impact actually was when you're looking at, because the the China shock theory is this thing that was, um there was this highly concentrated impact in certain industries with real political effects um given where this played out played out in the UK played out in the US and particularly notably and um and and this this was the period in which there was was the kind of most profound impact of 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 you know what the trade interactions with China looked like and it was clear in a number of industries that there were unfair subsidies um but through this whole stretch the 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 the, the 2000s you, you WTO cases were not being brought. The view was always this can be negotiated with China. WTO cases were seen as kind of bad form, that um this was something that should be negotiated out. Um and a little bit later than that, you have this point where the where the EU, uh, where the European Commission decides that they're gonna go after a couple of industries, um, solar and telecoms. Mm-hmm. Um And Because they say, well, look, these are the industries of the future. These are the areas where surely if we're looking at cases of unfair subsidies, we have to care about these, even if we're not caring as much as we should about steel or any of the other sectors that ultimately people moved on, um, but moved rather slowly on. And then they were kneecapped. By, in this case, Germany, um, that said, you know, again, it's unfriendly. We don't want to bring these cases. Some of the firms are often unhelpful as well, um, because the the Chinese side is is quite good at making sure that they have some equities there and will only come to the European Commission where their industry is virtually decimated, um, by which point some of these things are too late. So, in these two big cases that they tried to bring, which would have been a pretty effective way at that time of going off to Huawei and, you know, may have been able to slow down the, the the hit that you had on on the european solar sector but just wiped out I mean they, they were not able to use the means that had been put in place and should have been in place um because again the political attitude of how you conduct relations with China and economic relations with China uh, was was quite different and now we're getting all of this creativity about you know looking at it as being China Inc looking at the kind of colossal cross-subsidization that's going on you know we're in a phase now where even talking about the private sector in China has become you know less meaningful than it than it used to be but now it's almost impossible possible to get any of these things done through the channels that might once have actually made a difference and would have put China under pressure and now instead all of these these are going to have to be um, approached in other ways and the WTO won't be able to help.
0: Mm. Yeah I guess it's also quite complex like the um, another another thing that really opened my eyes was uh, the the book uh, The Shock Doctrine from Naomi Klein which I think I've referenced oh. like 60 times on this show. <laughs> uh, I think it's possibly one of the best books that's there's ever been written or at least non-fiction um and uh, she talks a lot about how like this the idea that it was china inc was kind of hidden behind like it used to be like directly state-owned industries and then Mm. what a lot of the uh, what what basically happened through the 90s was they harnessed the, the the idea of privatization and like companies going public and and using the mechanisms of capitalism but then the owners were not the state anymore but it was just Members of the 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 CCP or their family, um, who who became the owners, so they have theoretically still got the same level of control, but it's hidden behind a whole bunch of layers of ownership that you can't you can't trace.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I I think this is it's been a very complex picture to try to determine like what is the entity that you're really dealing with on the Chinese side. What is a subsidy and what isn't? What is going into it? That's electricity pricing. What is it that's the kind of support for infrastructure development? I mean, there's there's so many different co- component parts to it, and and the ownership and structures of of these things have have moved so much on the Chinese side. And I mean, it's 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 been the interesting thing in the last few years is more of it has been made. Almost transparent. I mean, it's. I mean, it, it's opaque in one sense, but what has transparently happened is the hand of the party has come in much more kind of comprehensively. You've had certain things more institutionalised and legalised that were maybe done more informally uh, before. Um, but it has been a real clawback of the independence of what bits of the private sector you had, because I mean, there were areas in which. Um, wealthy individuals in China were also dictating terms to bits of the party at certain points in, in certain areas. I mean, it was it was not, I mean, this is in a sense one of the things that Xi Jinping was also trying to clamp down on to show very fully who was in who was in charge and you saw that particularly in one of the most independent previously areas mm. of the chinese economy which was the consumer facing tech sector mm. um where they just absolutely went after all of these people jack ma and and um and and, and all of these the, the people that had been the kind of well here's the benign face of what um you know, uh, a rising tech-savvy um, private sector China could could look like. All of that's just been 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 reined in, and so it's become much easier to point to certain things now that in the past, when one was running this analysis, were were kind of hidden behind various layers of, you know, state-owned state asset um, entities and and in kind of cross-cutting industrial subsidies and all of these sorts of things. Now it's just the party is in control. There are cells and specific individuals who are Kind of um have, have been put in these in, in these companies there's a parallel structure now that means the private sector has to uh has to answer to a different boss
0: hmm. so the it seems like to me that the the point like the real turning point in terms of like western policy towards china was was basically like the 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 huawei 5g um debacle whatever you want to describe it as um so like what do you think it was about the the 5g infrastructure and that technology that, that made it like that really brought this like full force into into sort of the the mainstream of of discussion about uh about you know international policy and whether we wanted to like cooperate with china and on what level
1: so i think there were two really interesting things about 5g because i mean you can look at all these other kind of developments and and, and i mean what we've seen in with the covid pandemic what we've seen with how China's handled the ukraine crisis um and just the kind of the catch up that you'd seen from from china in military and technological terms i think all of these things are going on in in the background you have these kind of shifting assessments taking place in the us military among advanced um uh, uh among advanced industries in 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 places like germany that had previously been quite relaxed about the the developments um on 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 the chinese side and, and did think they could stay a few steps ahead. Um, but the interesting thing about what 5G does is on the US side, what it does is I think lead to an understanding of the challenge that China poses in something that is more like systemic terms, because you can't think about all of the different dimensions of what 5G represents as a technology uh, without thinking, w- while thinking about it through a US-China prism alone. In the most kind of straightforward terms of this, um, the the main competitors to uh Huawei um and uh ZTE on on the chinese side the the only ones left standing um in the telecom sector that could replicate what they could do uh, were were two european firms ericsson and 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 nokia um so when the us at this juncture started saying well you know, we cannot afford to be as relaxed about 5G as we could about um previous generations, about 4G. Um uh it's a more um data-centric uh version of um how the telecoms networks will evolve that has a whole different set of um risks and it's going to be far more central to really the enabling infrastructure of all of the other technologies that we we care about in future as well. Um uh, we're gonna have to deal with this differently, but but also the the market basis for everything looked incredibly concerning. It was a, a version of kind of what the telecoms future for the world looked like that said not not only were we down to Nokia and Ericsson, one of them was almost certainly going to go, maybe both of them. Um, you were basically having the squeezing out in a critical sector um, of potentially you know, the entirety of the collective West's capacity to do this kind of basic but kind of critical task um of developing the spine of you know how we communicated the and 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 for 5G um you know a whole series of different things that we, we still haven't even dealt with yet um in terms of kind of some of the new capabilities that will um will will be possible in, in in certain industries as a result of that. And so I think the understanding at that point on the on the US side was you know we can't act on this as th- this is not a US China conversation. Mm. This is a um what does the global market in this this um, entire field uh, look like? What do we have to do in industrial terms to make sure that we're we're not outpaced? And it, it kind of fused the technology, security, industry, um, economic question that was this, I think, the way that China policy started to be thought about differently, because it was all in its separate lanes before in, in, on the US side. It's only in the last few years that you started to get all of these questions seen in more integrated Terms um, to, to not have these sharp distinctions, which was always the way the Chinese side tended to think about these questions, but was also kind of waking up to that concept of systems. Um, and um, and Marxist thinking is is much more amenable to that than 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 the models that we'd we'd had for for, for thinking about this in 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 the West. And um, so I, I think on the U.S. side, that was kind of what it, it represented, and, and the way that the U.S. had to go about uh, dealing with this was. It um, was just not a classic security problem. Um, if you wanted to go around and persuade some pretty reluctant allies to upend the models that they had in place, um, spend money on this very differently, um, recast their relations with China as a result of it, mm. um, uh, and 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 beyond this specific task um, of essentially shutting um, Chinese firms out from 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 these decisions, which were very very imminent decisions, um, you had this wider question of kind of how how what was this going to mean across a whole series of other uh, sectors as well. And, and I mean, of course, if you're thinking about what we've just seen, the expansive export controls on semiconductors, for instance, it's the same issue with semiconductors. You can't semiconductors. Yes, there's a critical part of it that's there on the U.S. side, but it's it's the United States, it's Taiwan, it's the Netherlands, it's um uh it's it's South Korea. There's, there's a kind of a whole chain that you have to pull into effect and think about it across a system rather than um just as a US-China problem. Um but I mean more briefly, I mean the Europe side was was a different question. This was then this adjustment in thinking that said, because people still wanted to say, well, we want to be open to trade with China. We should not close our system down. But the difference between being open to normal trade, I mean, subsidized trade or otherwise, but but certain forms of trade with China um, and a version of things that said that China will build out your most critical networks, um, I think was something where when politicians who had not thought about this question started to look into it and what was at stake with it, it became harder and harder to make sense of why that was okay. Why this was, why, when, if you put all the pieces together, you looked at what was going on in in, in China under Xi Jinping, you saw the surveillance state in in, in Xinjiang, um, you saw this kind of direction of, of flow that was heading in this much more rivalrous direction. Why on earth were you going to give China this access to, um, the entirety of uh, European telecom networks and what on earth had gone on that meant that this was a difficult decision even. <laughs> Why is it that yeah. Western telecoms firms had had become so enmeshed with this that they were sitting around saying it will be impossible without China and it will cost so much money that it's absolutely impossible. I mean that, that was a problem in its own right that we'd already gone so far down the line on this that it was even in question. Um, and so I think it, it did really help to wake people up um, across a number of Europe countries, people haven't really thought about China in, again, systemic terms or some of these challenges before, uh, to start to address a bit more seriously, hang on, we need to revise the the paradigm on on this, we need to think about the openness of our systems uh, differently, we need to define this uh, differently. And we're dealing with something quite different when it comes to, you know, selling socks or selling steel, uh, versus China's advanced Capabilities in, in 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 these sectors, it exports values with it in a different way. In the in way that you don't have values in, embedded in socks, you do have values embedded in uh, some of these advanced technologies. And and so I think it led people to wrestle with 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 this problem in a very uh, different way. And certainly here in Germany, and of course we saw the debate in the UK, but um, but but I think across a number of countries in Europe, it, it forced quite a different reckoning with 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 what the economic interaction with China really amounted to. And, and, and lastly, it was also a point in which China started, I mean, the use of economic coercion, the threats that you had, it's one thing threatening countries over how they handle Taiwan. Um, you may not like it, but you can you can make a case for saying that this is China's core interest and the same with the Dalai Lama and the Nobel Peace Prize for Liu Xiaobo and things like that. But threatening countries to say, unless you in allow our firms into these sensitive sectors, you will be punished economically, which is what was essentially coming from. That also looked quite problematic um, in, in a very different way. The, the, the idea that you would use ec- the, the economic coercion and, and the threats that, that, that China was able to bring to bear in quite a different way that, that, that said, you know, we have to be um, embedded in your systems in this way you have to be open to us you do not have a choice if you make a different choice on this you will be punished in other ways um and and this was made openly and explicitly and i i think um you know privately it was it, it was it was expressed in in, in even sharper terms
0: mm. yeah i think your your analogy there about the socks um is is fantastic is like it because I, I feel like that's how a lot of businesses would probably continue to view China. is just like, oh, it's a place to get cheap stuff, essentially. And, and they don't. So then for the, for the benefit, for like posterity, like, why is it that we like, you know, aren't they just selling us bits of tech? You know, why is that a bad thing? You know, they've just got some cheap like you know, satellites or uh, telecoms infrastructure—they want to just sell us. Like, what's insidious about that? Yeah, um,
1: and, and I, I think <laughs> this was the the sort of—I mean, there was an interesting exercise that we also went through through with this though, which was um, uh, this was treated as a technical question. Um, and if you t- if you talk to some of the people who who work on this on the technical side, you talk to people at. Um, uh that NCSC the the GH uh, gchqs kind of entity that that that, that handles the, the these issues the, the the attitude is is very much look there are all of these complex cyber threats this is not the most important one. Why worried about this? In the hierarchy of concerns, we can kind of deal with 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 the problems that are, are there with China. And, and this isn't something that everyone accepts. I mean, the US doesn't really accept this. The Australians didn't accept this. Um, yeah. But th- there are plenty of people on the cyber side who say, there are all of these vulnerabilities. Does it really matter who builds? Uh, The 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 system out, Um, and I think you had this kind of technical discussion about this uh, question that was that it was essentially about spying. It was about you know can China siphon data? Will we notice if they do? Um, Is does five G pose a different problem to the problems that we had in the networks before? What does it mean that it's you're having all of this extra volume of code, but you had these problems before? So I mean, you could have a technical discussion about what this amounted to. Um, The argument from some on this was this is and, and this is why these kind of industrial questions and things came came to the fore as well this was not just a technical discussion um this this was a question about um it, it is a different problem to manage um not a, a, on, on the technical side there were questions about what what does it mean if you have 5g outages um on on the nato side there were literally questions about mobilization capacity and but i mean there, there were a whole series of different um issues at stake again which, which 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 looked different given the usages to which people were expecting 5g would be would be put but it was also a wider economic industrial question that said what does it mean if this entire sector is ceded to china which is what it would have amounted to. Hmm. Um, you, you would basically have been creating a situation in which um, future uh, generations, uh, 6G, but 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 already we were kind of getting close to this in 5G, um, would all be essentially controlled on, on the Chinese side. Hmm. Um, and it would be harder and harder to unwind this. I mean, this was already the problem that was um, you know, 5G was building out from 4G, and I mean you, you were already having a degree of embeddedness um in, in in the systems, even from where you started from. It was costly to 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 kind of go through, even if over time and and, and make this, this this adjustment when you became um sufficiently in in enmeshed in, in it. But um you were facing a situation in which this entire sector was going to be virtually lost um and yes there were all sorts of other clever things that you could come up with um, that the people have been trying to for in, in in the advanced planning for uh for 6G and um, you know trying to provide kind of open systems that can be um disaggregated um, uh, but we weren't there yet and there was a there, there was a real decision that, that that basically said and I mean there were questions on the. US side about whether you were going to have to subsidize. Um, one or other of these european companies to be able to um e- even if you were able to put political pressure on 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 certain um countries to to change their decisions um and i think this that this became this question across the board what are you willing to just seed as entire areas and fields when you when when the 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 consequences of this are um, in some respects, unpredictable, but you can also see some predictable problematic consequences that, that, that could very well uh, follow from it. So the technical question of whether they were able to access, you know, get uh, siphon data and what had gone on in the a- African Union, I mean, all the kind of Huawei stories and things that there had, had, had been before, uh, for a lot of the people that were involved, that was not the crux of it. Um, it was it was a whole series of other questions that were that that, that mattered far more than, than than some of the the discussions that were being held between uh, the NSA and GCHQ and, and and some of the other agencies that were involved.
0: Sorry, I'm just looking up this African Union story. Wow, I didn't I, I didn't know <laughs> <Right>. about this. <laughs> wow. So yeah, so they they I gonna pull this up for people to see. So so there was so they they ran the tech in the African Union headquarters, and then they they used it to to spy on them essentially. By the signs of um, things, there was
1: certainly some unusual movements of uh, of, of of data. Um, yes, I mean this this I, I mean this is this has been when there's there's been this kind of question on, on on these things that has been well but you know really did what 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 are our concerns about Huawei what's the track record on this um and then when you dig into a number of the cases the, the African Union one was was a particularly uh, prominent one um but you've had these cases of um uh in in other instances of you know Huawei technicians helping to pinpoint, opponents of the government. I mean, there's a, the whole kind of array of different things that were were really cause for, for, for concern. This was not just a speculative question. Um, and But it, even without going into the specific cases, one of the things that was being lent on was that they had a legal obligation to spy for the Chinese government if they were instructed <laughs> to. This was the... Uh, the the amazingly oh, helpful thing goodness. that Xi Jinping was, I mean they passed the law that to, to this effect and then and and, and part of the what then went on was um, he, uh, Huawei paid some lawyers to basically uh, give an account that said that they don't have to follow this law, uh, that there are kind of exemptions that they can find to to, to this law, um, and for some on the European side as well, this was also not very reassuring. I mean, you ultimately had uh, Huawei CEO saying, "We will not follow this law even if we are told to," um, and I think running around saying that you're not going to follow various laws um, for, for political reasons, I think, was not a vastly reassuring statement for. No. Uh, European bureaucrats on, on these things uh, either so I mean they, they the, the there was I mean purely on legal grounds and and this was ultimately when the kind of the toolbox that was put together on the European side and these kind of technical measures that would mean that one had very justified legal grounds for saying that they should be excluded or that one had to you know companies had to adhere to certain requirements which would include the idea that there would be appropriate means of of, of legal redress um if Thank <laughs> There was going to be spying conducted. And, and, and we've 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 had we've gone through this as as, as well on, on, on the US side. it's still a kind of point of contention when it comes to data flows on, on, on the US, European side. And but the Chinese version of it, looks like a hundred steps further uh, along. And so I mean, I, I think this was then the, the the additional problem that you were and 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 it's why the internal changes in China had had mattered. Once upon a time, you could have made a case that said, you know, it's this thriving private sector company that yes it's had a lot of subsidies from the chinese state but it is more independent it was it was not uh zt it was a kind of buccaneering firm of its own but we've gone into a point in in the chinese system where it's become almost impossible to to make that argument anymore when it matters whatever you think of of huawei there were certain obligations that they had that um that that would mean that it, the the Chinese government could could in the right circumstances have them do uh, well, a whole whole list of, of, of different things if if required for, uh, for on, on national security grounds um, and and there was no really good way out of that argument again whatever one thought about their intentions on um you know and, and what the commercial impact would have been if they if they'd done this the point was at the point in which they would do it um yes no one would then put one way in their networks again but by then it would be too late And yeah. I
0: think this was yeah, <laughs> it's a bit like oh we'll put the padlock on after you know all the chickens get out of the coop you know <laughs> yeah and and like what you're saying do, do you think it was always or do you think sorry do you think that xi jinping's sort of um rule in China has made like a real marked difference or is it just like that we see it now more openly?
1: I mean I think that that has been the other big shift and, and the way it's I think the way some of the China analysts describe it um, it is this move from soft authoritarianism to totalitarianism mm-hmm. um, and I mean the kind of that that's been what it that, that's been the, the tangible difference that there's that there's been and 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 one can debate and I mean certainly in in the book and 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 for lots of people uh, it, it's not just a Xi Jinping question that, that's certainly not the case um, and and you can make an argument that says that. Um, Uh, this is as much about China's power position as anything else. He's able to do this because China is now strong enough to do this. Um, And in other circumstances, Another leader, even Deng Xiaoping, arguably, at an appropriate juncture, would have turned around and said, "You know, now is the point in which we can kind of step up and throw our weight around differently. We don't have to be behold. We don't have to placate our, the Americans. Um, we 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 can advance a very different agenda now." And certainly, that was already unfolding. A, a lot of the developments um, that we are now complaining about, in in you know, in a very different way, the kind of wolf warrior diplomacy stuff and um, an economic. Cooperation. I mean, lots of this stuff was already in evidence before Xi Jinping um, took over. So it's not unique to him. But um, it's certainly the case that there are a series of trends in, in China that have, have felt like they're going in, in in reverse. And the recent party congress, um, and I mean, you've, you, whether that's Politically, the level of domestic repression, the reach of the party, um, but on the economic side too, there had always been this kind of dangled hope for a long time of just the economic reform piece on this—that um, that, that China was still marketizing in a certain way—and um, that was one of the other reasons that people that, that all of this took so long. There were real biting reforms that they had to make to join the WTO, and for a long time afterwards, there was still a, a process that was w- was underway there, and there were still figures who looked like they. They were kind of part of that process and were and did genuinely want to make some of these changes. Under Xi Jinping, it is politics first, security first, um, uh, fused into this kind of ideological cocktail as well that's increasingly come to the fore. And the economy does not matter as much. So it means that China's economic power is also far more instrumentalized. To serve certain political and security goals, and so the idea, um, you know, as as with the kind of it would be commercially problematic if they did X and Y, it's been very economically problematic for China to take, take a lot of the decisions that they've been taking uh, in the last period of time, and they've decided to do it anyway because mm-hmm. the priorities have 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 shifted, and that is something that bears the imprint of of Xi Jinping. I think there would have been other leaders who would have balanced this out differently. Um, and I mean, I cite in the book this point after the financial crisis when I went to meet this Chinese academic who kind of, you know, Mm. basically said the cooperation times are done. I am done. (laughs) Um, uh, The only debate now is should we be more assertive now or more assertive later? Um, The strategic direction is now clear. Um, And there are some who think Xi Jinping moved too fast. Um, look, there are a couple of major vulnerabilities that China still has, um, particularly in the technology sector um, and in global finance, mm. um, the dollar system. Of, sorry,
0: yeah, I was about to say just uh, yeah. like, is that, do you mean um, sort of microchips um, and then financially, I'm assuming we're just talking strength of the the Chinese yen versus the dollar?
1: yeah i mean you you have the, the two dimensions of, of vulnerability are essentially that china is still dependent on us intellectual property and not just us i mean a kind of to some extent western um uh, across a whole series of different areas it's still us i mean semiconductors has been one focal point and and, and you know on on advanced semiconductors um but it's software it's design tools it's a whole kind of list of things and and, and it cuts across a range of different uh, areas and and there are still just areas where china although they've thrown prodigious sums of money into trying to build up the indigenous capabilities in these areas they still lag behind And if you look at the way they're enforcing the russia sanctions there are still a lot of chinese companies were totally paranoid about being cut off from access to the western technological and the, the us ecosystem um if they get
0: slapped with the same export control is that a realistic possibility though like do you do because like part i always have this like hypothetical discussion with uh, with people about it. it's like look if if say we just decided for the, there's numerous reasons you could decide this like even before the war in ukraine you could say okay the west as as the west or as the developed world we are not cool with what seems to be going on in um, xinjiang and we think that's abhorrent and wrong and th- therefore we're going to cut ties with you economically. Like, you are just going to stop. Like, we're just going to stop for six months. We're not going to b- buy anything from you. It's like, is is that, like, in any industry, like, a realistic possibility? Because it, it seemed like COVID showed us that so many of our supply chains are so intertwined with China that we we wouldn't actually physically be capable of making that decision.
1: Well, I mean, I think that's the big... I mean, there's two sides to this question now. What, one is the sort of... Um, one one is the issue of how we identify and quantify and mitigate some of these specific dependencies, um, where we are genuinely, um reliant on on China in certain critical areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this has obviously been the case with uh with rare earths and a couple of uh, but I mean there's you know there are some countries that are still reliant on them for um, pharmaceutical inputs or I mean there's there's I mean, we we have had a version of globalization that's been very sinocentric. There are lots of there are lots of things that run through China at the moment and 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 the pandemic uh, certainly illustrated that. um but some of these are contingent. I mean, there are there are some but that that has been true. um but, um, it is also possible, some of these things do not rely um, on kind of specific resources that China has or specific um, uh, things that can't be replicated elsewhere. It would just take time and it would be costly um, to be able to kind of rebalance some of these things. And I think there's a big exercise in, in 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 figuring out what that would amount to and how to still be, I mean, still trade, but be sufficiently resilient if you did have a kind of Russia-style hard cutoff that you could live with it in a certain sense. Yeah. Um,
0: but the other piece of I mean, this we, is... You we say hard cut off we've shown what a hard wow. cut off looks like with rushes like no we're not going to use their or, or, no actually kind of, we kind of need it um, no we're not going to take their grain. oh oh no maybe we kind of need some of that do you know do you know what i mean like even well, even it, it, in the face but- of this we haven't managed to hold up to our word <laughs> Well, true, and I
1: mean, I think this is the issue on, on, in in some of these scenarios with with China as well. That I mean, China still needs to trade with us in all serious areas. Mm-hmm. We still need to train, trade with China, and the question is, how, how? What do these? what's the map of these dependencies actually look like? Where can China? Where can we really live without China? And 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 where not? How, where are these asymmetrical? Where can they be weaponized one way or the other? Um, I think what we've seen on the technology side is there are some real choke points um, where if the us cuts off certain specific access to you know specific um uh technologies then it will have a kind of highly targeted impact on the chinese side that will have you know, profound effects on that specific sector, but it's not going to derail the whole of the economic relationship. And they can do that in, in a very targeted way. And it's quite hard for the Chinese side to retaliate effectively. We'll we'll run through a real test of that with semiconductors in 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 the coming months and 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 to some extent years. Um, but you you also have this question, which is if we go into a scenario which is quite plausible in the years ahead uh, with Taiwan, which you know, could conceivably see um, a uh, would ultimately see a war between the United States and and, and China. Um, we're going to deal with a profound economic shock as a result of that. Um, whatever people, ch- however involved people choose to be in sanctions or otherwise. Um, and and so I mean, on the Chinese side, these vulnerabilities when it comes to financial sanctions are still a huge concern in that situation because if we're in if we're in that sort of environment, which would be, you know, substantially greater in terms of direct military clashes um, versus what we're doing at the moment, which you know is we're, we're, this kind of proxy conflict in a certain sense. Um, we'd be in a situation in 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 which you you would expect that uh, a number of these financial sanctions would would be applied to China, and that and that's the 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 measures that have been that have been applied to to, to Russia. I think very much the intention has been to conceive of these tools and think about them with future application to um, contingencies that might involve uh, Taiwan as well. Um, And to be able to threaten that um, in in a certain way to to China, to be able to say, look, we've gone further up. The escalation ladder on the on, on on the kind of economic warfare side than you had expected uh, on on central bank measures on SWIFT on these things that you thought we wouldn't do mm. we we will do these things and you can't trust that we won't do them to to, to you too mm. um, and and so this is still this big point of vulnerability because if 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 the, it would be extremely costly to us, but so would the war. And it will be a scenario that would see China in some of these scenarios or, or critical firms or whatever, you know, cut out of the international financial architecture and be be, be treated like you know, Iran or Russia or North Korea or, or something. And, and the, the ripple effects for China would be far greater in some respects than 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 for russia i mean it's a far more intertwined economy um uh than the russia's even though the blowback would be would be far greater um for the united states for for europe in that situation as well but that's still the area in which um china knows it's vulnerable and knows that it it, it needs to build up certain forms of resilience that right now it, it does not have on on, on the financial side hmm.
0: so would you would you say then in a, in a sense that the sanctions we're imposing on Russia at the moment are sort of a, you know, just launch out, we could do this to you, sort of like thing. Just like in obviously there's like the, the main reason for doing it. But like just in the yeah. background, do you think that's that's what like some of the Western powers are thinking?
1: Especially on the US side, certainly. Um I I think I think th- this everyone who is at the top level's crafting policy on this uh, on, on the US side, has has China in, in in mind on any of these questions as well? Um, it's 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 kind of this has been a crisis where rather than being purely kind of pulled away from the China thinking as had happened in the past, mm-hmm. the China thinking on this has been completely ingrained in 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 some of the. Tactics and 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 approaches and and longer term strategy involved in this. So certainly, when it comes to the financial sanctions, the export controls, um, there's been a kind of mindedness and planning and thinking about what this would mean uh, for China too. And and in fact, some of the measures, I mean, they were some of them were in motion already. But but we've seen on the Chinese um, on, on the chip sector some of the measures. They're not. Um, Some of these are similar tools that have been used on on the US side um, as the tools that have been used against Russia, and those tools were pioneered against Huawei. Um, and so, I mean, when you're going through and kind of looking at the traceability of, of kind of you know, everything becomes easier when you've, when you've done it once in, in, in a specific application, we've seen this with sanctions across the board, you'd never have had the Iran sanctions without the North Korea sanctions, you'd never have had the Russia sanctions without the Iran sanctions, and China becomes more imaginable after what we've seen with Russia, um, mm. than it was before. Uh, we'd, we'd seen what we've seen w- with Russia, and we've kind of tested out the muscle memory and the kind of how will this work and what will the points of tension be. And again, it would be a radically different and more difficult task, and, and with, with with very different consequences. But China now has to entertain the possibility that we would operate at the at a higher level than I think they had had thought was likely at the beginning of um, at the beginning of this year.
0: Mm. So. Do you think that some sort of new Cold War, perhaps with Taiwan at the center, is like a realistic possible? Like, well, it's definitely a realistic possibility. How realistic is that possibility in the future? Like, is that a, a 95% certainty? Is it like 5%? Like, where would you put, like, how concerned are you about that possibility?
1: Um, I think it had been... I mean- I will play the numbers uh, game with this. Um, th- there are there are people on the US side at the moment on who, who are towards this being a an expectation um, that this is something that happens in the time frame that is the twenty twenty seven time frame, which is often the kind of uh, date that is used, which was kind of originally framed as essentially when would the PLA be capable of conducting. Um, an invasion of Taiwan successfully, I mean, crudely reduced. Um, uh, This has morphed a bit in some of the analysis to if they are capable of doing this, then this is also when they would do this with the wild card as well of what goes on in the Taiwanese elections in 2024, and how that fits together with the US elections in 2024, and and so some of the different Mm. dynamics there are then where I think there are concerns that, you know, how some of those scenarios might play out how China might choose to approach these things so uh, there is the kind of high level probability that's accorded uh, accorded to some um i f- from my perspective and and, and some people who have been who have been watching this i think the risk has gone up considerably um uh, i still have questions about whether it will be considered um uh wise on the Chinese side. And, and I mean you can run through and say there are all sorts of unwise things that Xi Jinping has done, but they're they're a different kind of approach to the approach that, that Putin has taken. It's it's not a like for 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 like. Uh, and the PLA is still kind of poorly tested out in combat. I think there's still going to be a degree of wariness there. My, my I I still think percentage risks have increased considerably. And if you have a 20% risk of, of these scenarios given the, the scale of what would be involved, that's a very problematically high level of risk. Whereas I think you'd have pared it down something below that before. And, and Xi Jinping clearly has a, a different outlook on these things. What we've seen from party congress, but recent party congress is very much this kind of preparing the society and the economy for struggle. It's more autarkic. It's getting ready for some of these scenarios. It doesn't have to be that he chooses to go ahead with them, but there will be a level of military capacity and preparedness and there will be a level of societal capacity and preparedness um, in the coming years that will look very different from what we've had before and so you then get into the zone of you know other particular windows, other particular risk junctures um, uh, where you know the, the, the these calculations kind of shift in a particular uh, direction. So I think that is a a, a real uh, concern in a way that uh, has, has has increased but I don't think it's still the primary scenario. Um, I, I think um, although we have to kind of prepare for that possibility um, and, and that would of course have a dramatic reconditioning effect on on everything. I mean would, would have a far more dramatic uh, impact than, than you know, anything else we've seen in decades um, I, I I think we're still more likely to be in a kind of a slower paced, uh, process on on all of this something that is something much more like a kind of Global system struggle that's underway that on the Chinese side um you know it's taking on increasingly overt ideological anti-western um uh, um qualities um and where we what we've seen with China and Russia is is something that um I would expect both to be kind of Deepened, replicated in certain other ways. I I think you've got away from this period on on the Chinese side where um, you have something that looks like non alignment. They want their own coalition. It may not be as. Capable of coalition as 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 the West and the advanced industrial democracies, but it can certainly complicate and 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 make life considerably more difficult for the US and its allies than China operating alone. And so I think they're thinking very seriously about that. Um, but I think the real game from their perspective as well is is the global South, um, the developing world, um, where you know if you look at the list of countries that were the sanctions coalition. Um, for Ukraine, um, for, for 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 Russia's invasion, and then you look at everyone else um, who's not been involved. From China's perspective, that's who you're playing for in 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 different ways. Um, that's that's vast swathes of the world outside the U.S. alliance network, and you know, handful of of, of others. Yeah. Um, and I think the sense is still for the long-term kind of global balance on this. Yes, China might have to write off the liberal democracies, but that looks like a smaller group and at the moment as the preponderance of economic and military power and technological power, but 2030, 2040, 2050, what does this look like if you're able to put yourself in the position to occupy a dominant role in many of the other emerging um, economies? Um, how, you know, How far are you able to position yourself to um, uh, to, to kind of put the pieces together on, on, on the global puzzle in a way that means that you're dealing with a kind of shrunken kind of defensive version of the Western liberal democracies in a way that you were once the shrunken um defensive version of the few remaining communist states or authoritarian uh states. Um and, and I think that's to me the the longer term, more probable kind of way in which this is is, is likely to play out. And, and during a period in which you know, China's gonna be facing a lot of difficulties economic growth has has, has dropped. Um, uh, the ideological and securitized turn, of course, is not fantastic for economic growth rates. Um, a struggle model is, is, is not the same as reform and opening. Um, so in, in some ways, this is going to be a less attractive, less dynamic um, China that's capabilities advance not as quickly as they were before, but in much more targeted ways, in ways that are still going to be extremely consequential to political security interests of 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 the united states of europe of 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 the other democracies and with a much more kind of ideological drive to it a much more Mm. kind of overtly confrontational quality than what we've experienced before
0: yeah yeah i mean it's it's tough to know how it's going to play out um but to get a much better understanding um of all about how this uh race for the future is going to play out definitely people check out the rupture comes highly recommended really really enjoyed it really enjoyed it actually man it was really well written so um thanks so much for your time uh, it's been it's been a pleasure chatting and to read your book um is there anything else apart from the book that you want to point people towards like your social medias twitter that sort of jazz
1: um twitter ajw small um and there's more information about the book on uh, the website andrewsmall.org
0: wonderful um so yeah man uh thanks so much for your time it's, it's been a pleasure
1: well, it's been a pleasure for me too thank you
0: Hey everyone, thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time. So whenever I'd be out for a walk, whenever I was going to cook dinner, whenever I was doing cleaning, I always used to spend my time listening to music. And I still really enjoy listening to a lot of music, but what I've discovered is that I can consume so many more books when I'm using something like Open Audible. It's a fantastic, fantastic way for me to make my way through all the things I have to read for this podcast, for things I want to read for fun. That's like fiction and non-fiction. Sometimes I actually prefer fiction when it's being read to me. Uh, I like someone doing the voices, like someone, you know, really getting into the characters. In the case of both fiction and non-fiction, it allows me to spend way more time visualizing what I'm reading, so I can think more about the ideas, I can think more about the scenes that people are trying to paint, and ultimately it just gives my brain more space to think because I'm not concentrating on the words in front of me or trying to stay focused on it. Instead, I can just sort of mindlessly get on with whatever task I'm doing and listening via Open Audible. Now, the reason Open Audible is great is because it allows me to do it straight from my desktop I try to stay away from my phone as much as possible in order to sort of maximize my productivity because it can be a very fast way to waste half an hour. Whereas if I just open my laptop and hit play on Open Audible, I can connect it to my Bluetooth speaker and then I don't even have to go anywhere near my phone. Do you like free stuff? I'm sure you do. Well, I'm going to give away a free copy of Open Audible to one lucky person that signs up for my mailing list in the next month. Now, those of you who are already signed up, don't worry. You can be involved in the draw as well. Just give me a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts and post it on Twitter. Send it to me via email. Respond to something I've posted on YouTube. Somewhere you can prove you've got a screenshot and I will enter you in the draw. I have to admit, I used to be a little bit of a book snob. I wouldn't even consider a Kindle, let alone an audiobook. It just felt like cheating. But that is until I tried Audible and Open Audible. Ever wonder where I find the time to read all the books that my guests have written on this show? Well, this is the answer. When I'm behind in my reading, I just jump to audiobook. Open Audible is a cross-platform audiobook manager designed for Audible users that can allow you to download, view, manage, and connect your favorite audiobooks on MP3 so that you can enjoy them across all your devices. Best of all, you can control it all from a desktop application. I'm giving away a copy of Open Audible for the entire month of November. All you have to do is sign up to my mailing list. You'll find the link in the description below or go to openaudible.org for more information.